How are the origins of the French Revolution connected with Beyonce, Jay-Z and Rihanna? The answer lies with one of the world's most mysterious and misunderstood secret societies, the Illuminati. So the Illuminati were a group that was founded in a Bavarian university town, uh, Ingolstadt, by a man named Adam Weishaupt in 1776. So note the date. And if you're a conspiracy theorist, you think 1776, well, that's when the United States declared its independence. This cannot be a coincidence. And there they go. But the That's Michael Butter, conspiracy theory researcher and professor of American studies at the University of Tübingen in Germany. When it comes to conspiracy theories, remember, there are no coincidences. Nothing happens by accident, nothing is as it seems, and everything is connected. Everything is connected. Everything is connected. 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 As Michael says, the Illuminati was actually a real society. Adam Weishaupt, the man who founded it back in 1776 in modern-day Germany, was a law professor. It was a secret order that existed only for a couple of years that tried to promote enlightenment thought, which is something that you could not do out in the open in conservative Bavaria at the time, which is why these people met in secret. And of course, their goal was to transform society, but not violently by causing uh, revolutions, but by educating people, by planting ideas in the minds of people over a very, very long period of time. They wanted to illuminate people's minds by spreading those crazy enlightenment ideas of rational thought, liberty, the separation of church and state. In reality, this secret society was short-lived. The authorities found out about their activities, and by 1788, the Illuminati order was disbanded. Once the authorities found out about the Illuminati, they outlawed the order and it dissolved and disappeared. However, conspiracy theorists are convinced that the Illuminati never really disappeared, but that they secretly infiltrated the Freemasons and have been using Masonic lodges ever since to cause all kinds of mischief, causing the French Revolution, causing other kinds of war, um, taking over power in the United States, and all other kinds of things. There is no hard evidence for any of this. But the idea of the Illuminati, a secret society of powerful elites controlling world events behind the scenes remains a very popular conspiracy theory to this day. You're listening to The Expert Guide to Conspiracy Theories, a podcast series from The Conversations Ant Hill podcast. I'm your host, Annabelle Bly. In this episode, we are going to be exploring the history of conspiracy theories. As we heard in part two of the series, some researchers say conspiracy theories are as old as human civilization, that being suspicious of other people is hardwired into our brains. But a lot of historians argue that what we think of as a conspiracy theory today actually emerged during the Age of Enlightenment and the 18th century in particular. Here's Michael Butter again. 
And this makes a lot of sense because the conspiracy theories that we still know today about Freemasons, about the Illuminati and other secret societies really emerge at that time in the context of the American Revolution and then later the French Revolution. The complexity of modern conspiracy theories is very different, Michael says, to those suspicions people may have had of conspiracies going on which have probably always featured throughout human society. We need to distinguish between maybe an orally articulated uh, suspicion, I think these two people are up to something, and what we understand when we say conspiracy theory, which is the collecting of evidence, the constructing of a narrative that ascribes motives to a specific group that interprets events in a specific fashion, claiming that things are not what they seem, that there is something going on beneath the surface, that there are secret connections between people, that nobody is aware of. This is very different from pointing to two people who are standing in a corner and saying, I think they're up to something. I think they they are plotting something. The level of complexity that modern conspiracy theories have is built on a way of thinking that emerged in the Enlightenment. This is a period of history that started in the 17th century and is seen as the birth of the modern era. You had famous thinkers like Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Thomas Paine emphasising the power of human reason and of the scientific method. This followed off the back of the Renaissance, which started this big shift in European society away from religious dogma. The idea of the individual emerged, with people increasingly emphasising human agency over God's will in dictating everything that happens in life. Many researchers argue that this way of thinking is fundamental to modern conspiracy theories. I think that for uh, modern forms of conspiracy theories, we need something like a modern understanding of the human subject. We need the idea that humans can actually act meaningfully in the world. There might be religious actors involved as well. There might be uh, supernatural actors, God, the devil, demons, whatever involved. But humans also need to possess agency. So you need a certain perspective on the human subject. And this one could argue is something that only emerges with the transition from the early modern period to the Enlightenment. It's not that people stopped believing in God altogether, but there was a decline in the belief that everything that happened was controlled by God, and this idea that the world was moving toward the end of history as God planned it. And this is an idea that is challenged more and more during the late 17th and the 18th century when other ideas about religion become more powerful. For example, that God has created the world but does not interfere with the daily business. Conspiracy theories move into this vacuum. People thought, if God isn't pulling the strings, then who is? In fact, believing in conspiracy theories was something that was completely accepted and quite normal at the time. People don't have the instruments of the modern social sciences at hand. They are not ready to accept 
that it's all chaotic and contingent and that there's lots of coincidence. So conspiracy theories step in and they fill this gap because conspiracy theories effectively allow you to stick to the old religious narrative, but at the same time, they allow you to secularize it because now it's no longer God who is pulling the strings in secret and controlling events, but it is the conspirators. So the course of history is still very ordered. You can exclude chaos. You can exclude unintended consequences. It is only now that there are evil people responsible for it, no longer a benevolent God. This major shift in the way that many people in the West thought converged with some major political upheaval in the 18th century, American independence and the French Revolution. To find out more, I spoke to Andreas Ernefors, Associate Professor in Intellectual History at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. He says the French Revolution really cemented conspiracy theories as a valid explanation for political events. The first establishment of a secular republic uh, occurs on the other side of the Atlantic in the United States, but it becomes really dangerous when it happens in the middle of Europe, in one of the oldest kingdoms of Europe, which is France, which is completely turned upside down. The old order is transformed into a secular republic. It's hard to stress how significant the French Revolution was. People demanded answers to explain the upheaval that took place, and they looked for someone to blame. I think that there are two things that are absolutely necessary to, to point out here. The one thing is that the change came so rapidly. Within a couple of years, you were going from an absolutist monarchy that is underpinned by Catholicism as a state ideology to a secular republic where religion is completely wiped out as the foundation of statehood. So it is a radical change. The second thing is how violent it was. The revolution had many stages. There was a civil war, there were executions and a reign of terror by the new secular government that came into power. And the bloodiness of the conflict and the violence that is attached to it makes people put off. Because in the, in the first phase of the French Revolution, you find some sort of endorsement among European intellectuals who say, what's this, what we told you? If a country does not reform according to the spirit of enlightenment, you will have these internal conflicts. Or look at America, they are living a prosperous life now. They have cut their ties with the British crown. Uh, so the French should be able to do the same thing and so on. But when the revolution really turned violent and when they started to kill their own people and even the king, which was still was a sacrilege, so to speak, then you come into a situation where the speed and the violence had to be explained to people. This gives rise to a conservative backlash, both by people in France who wanted to turn the clock back on the revolution and by people in Britain who were afraid the violence would spread across the channel and Britain too would be transformed into a secular republic. So these two movements, the conservative backlash and the British interest of, for self-preservation of their form of government, intersected into a, a powerful movement that tried to explain away the agency and, and to paint it as something dark that had uh, orchestrated this entire development. 
And so the Illuminati conspiracy theory was born. Remember, the Illuminati Order was a real society founded in 1776 to promote Enlightenment thinking. Despite the fact that it had already been disbanded by the time of the French Revolution in 1789, the Illuminati was blamed for it, along with others labelled radical Enlighteners. Andreas says the Illuminati were accused of masterminding this whole set of events. People thought it was part of their master plan to turn the entire system upside down. So as a blueprint to say, okay, we are going to mind control the population with the values of the Enlightenment. We are going to put books in the hand of the populace so that they can make up their own mind. Then we are going to attack the sacred institutions of our countries. And then we are going to lead a violent upheaval that will result in the abolition of the crown and the church. That's what people thought the Illuminati's plan was. There were forces in France who expressed these conspiracy theories and were part of an emerging coalition against the new republic. And there were those that had fled France and were living in exile in Britain. One influential voice was a Catholic priest named Abbé Baruel, who wrote a book about the revolution that blamed the Illuminati for orchestrating it. A Scottish scientist called John Robeson also picked up on this theme. He wrote a book called Proofs of Conspiracy, again blaming the evil forces of the Illuminati and Freemasons for working together to instigate the French Revolution and spread chaos. This found fertile ground in Britain because Britain was afraid that the French Revolution would tip over. We had the Irish Rebellion that was ongoing and that broke out in 1798, uh, and, and both Baruel and, and Robinson were popularised in the media. For certain political groups, the Illuminati became the bogeyman for dark forces at work in the world. Something they could blame for things that were going wrong. And something politicians could point to that people should be afraid of. The Illuminati was used to help people make sense of the French Revolution and became a central feature of European politics well into the 19th century. The anti-French coalition in Europe, which consisted of Britain, Prussia, Russia... Austria at the time, they were not interested in the spread of any republicanism in Europe at all. They wanted to keep different versions of monarchy, absolutist or parliamentary, as you could call the British system, in place. They were not at all interested in the spread of the ideas of the French Revolution, not even in the form of, uh, of Napoleon. So, you have this high goal in international politics. We don't want to have a system change. And then how does that translate into domestic politics? Domestically, the conspiracy theory was used to suppress freedom of association. There was a big uprising against British rule in Ireland in 1798, the Irish Rebellion. And there were various groups pushing for more political power for the masses in England. So the government pointed to dark forces at work behind the scenes that were trying to destabilise the system. They used this to stop groups from meeting up to discuss dangerous ideas. The Illuminati conspiracy theory also took hold in America at the same time. Michael Butter told me how the second president of the United States, John Adams, believed that the Illuminati were targeting his new government. 
And much of the legislation of the Adams administration, including the Alien and Sedition Acts... Uh, These laws made it easier for the government to deport foreigners and made it harder for immigrants to vote. ...can only be explained against the background of this Illuminati scare that gripped New England and especially Adams's Federalist Party at that time. But Michael Butter says it's important to recognise that the American Revolution didn't just give rise to conspiracy theories. They had actually been a driving force in the move for independence a few decades earlier. The American Revolution can be seen as the result of a large conspiracy theory that was held by some of the most prominent founding fathers, including George Washington, Thomas Jefferson and also John Adams. They believed or slowly came to believe during the 1760s and 70s that what the colonies were suffering from were not some unfortunate measures by the British Parliament, but that they were actually the victims of a huge plot orchestrated by the king's ministers and also King George III himself against liberty everywhere. And as the famous American historian Bernard Balin already uh, showed in a book from 1967, this legitimized for them their revolutionary efforts and was an important factor in leading to the American Revolution and thus to the formation of the United States. This is because conspiracy theories were a normal way of understanding what went on in the world at the time. Hence, they didn't disappear once the new US Republic was established. This is why we have conspiracy theories everywhere in American politics, basically into the 1960s. Conspiracy theories promoted and articulated not by some people on the fringe of society or the fringe of politics, but really at the centre of power. Throughout the 19th century, Michael says you can see various conspiracy theories talked about by everyone including intellectuals, scientists, even spiritual leaders. They are referenced in newspapers, in the speeches of political leaders, letters, and there are even books about them. And therefore we can just conclude that this is something that was absolutely uh, integrated in the mainstream, that was absolutely central to American politics and actually American culture at that time. And in fact, once we approach the culture from that angle, it's difficult not to see conspiracy theory anywhere in 19th century American culture because it truly is everywhere. The Ant Hill podcast is produced by The Conversation. We're a news website that gives a voice to academic experts from around the world. The Conversation is a charity. We don't have ads. We don't have corporate backing and we don't have a paywall. Our support comes largely from universities, charitable institutions and donations from people like you. If you'd like to invest in experts and help spread their message to a global audience, please consider donating. Go to donate.theconversation.com forward slash UK. That's donate.theconversation.com forward slash UK. Back in Europe, the Illuminati conspiracy theory was alive and well, but it had evolved by the start of the 20th century. Andreas Ernefors explains that revolutionary political movements continued to sweep the continent. What happens at the end of the 19th century is that we have an amalgamation of these 
political conspiracy theories in the aftermath of the French Revolution with anti-Semitism. And this is a conscious amalgamation which happens in the so-called Protocols of the Elder of Zion. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion is a fake transcript of a fictional secret meeting of Jewish leaders plotting world domination. It was first published in 1903 in Russian and then translated into multiple languages. Now, I can't emphasise enough that the document is a forgery. And that's because it is still referred to by conspiracy theorists today as evidence of a secret plot for world domination by a cabal of Jewish elites or bankers. These are classic anti-Semitic tropes that get rolled out by lots of conspiracy theorists. The exact origins of the document are obscure. Some say it's the Russian Secret Service, some say it's an author who just penned together uh, an anti-Semitic novel with some kind of strange uh, conspiracy theories that were around before. From a Russian perspective, this would have made sense at the time because the entire movement of democratic reform that had led to different adaptations and the formation of two national states in Europe, Germany and Italy, for instance, was still perceived as a threat by the Russian system, which still was a divinely ordained uh, monarchy. It's basically political propaganda. And Andreas says it adds a sinister twist to the previous Illuminati conspiracy theory that blamed radical Enlightenment thinkers for the French Revolution and other political upheaval. Behind all these organizations and behind the what they then in the 19th century saw was developing social democracy, communism, uh, the international banking system, international media and so on, we have yet another more powerful sinister group, which are the Jews. Sadly, anti-Semitism was nothing new. It had been around for centuries in Europe. But grouping Jews together with the Illuminati and other Masonic conspiracy theories of the 19th century made for a toxic mix. It elevated the perceived threat of Jewish people to society. And this idea gained a lot of currency in the early 20th century. When Germany lost the First World War, a conspiracy theory immediately sprang up that the country was stabbed in the back by domestic forces working with international elites to bring down the country. A big promoter of this idea was a nationalist leader called Erich Ludendorff. Ludendorff was a German general, was in fact kind of ruling this entire military regime of Germany at the end of the First World War. And he was prolific in pushing these international elites where exactly what was outlined in the protocols, namely international jury in combination with a host of secret organizations, also the Freemasons. So after the war, he sat down and wrote a book on this. This all became a pillar of Nazi ideology, which pushed the idea that Germany needed to get rid of these secret elites. Conspiracy theory switches from a powerful political idea to a terrible reality after 1933 with the persecution of Jews and the Holocaust. Britain was not immune from this kind of thinking. The idea of the Illuminati working behind the scenes to control world affairs was picked up by a popular author in the 1920s called Nestor Webster. I spoke to Lindsay Porter, who's written a book on the Illuminati, about Webster. 
she wrote a series of history books that were all purporting to be, you know, the kind of secret truth of the history of the world. She really, over a 30-year career, wrote several titles of revisionist history, starting with one of the French Revolution. Webster picked up on the earlier works of Abbé Baruel and John Robeson. It doesn't matter that these works had been totally discredited by their peers. Webster refers to them as proof that the Illuminati orchestrated the French Revolution. And then she connected the works of the Illuminati with every major world event up to her present day. And she's combining then, if you like, the Illuminati myth with fears about communism. She has in the first edition of the Socialist Network and World Revolution, she has separate charts that are tucked in the back that you can sort of unfold like this vast family tree or genealogy of every left-wing group in Europe, and she traces them back to Adam Weishaupt. That's that German law professor who founded the Illuminati secret order that we heard about at the beginning. So she's really coming from her kind of extreme right point of view and using the Illuminati as a way of kind of pinpointing an enemy that she and all of her like-minded, you know, readers must be vigilant against. Webster also absorbs the anti-Semitic feelings of the period into the Illuminati myth. Oh, and it's probably worth noting at this point that she was a member of the British Fascist Party. So she's beginning to conflate all kinds of enemies, if you like, of the right, of which a kind of vast Jewish conspiracy becomes part of her worldview. And she's influenced by another document, but this is a, a really kind of venomous and hateful forgery that came out uh, around the end of the 19th, early 20th century called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which still circulates in the kind of darker recesses of the internet today. Lindsay says that the Protocols of the Elders of Zion had largely been discredited in Britain by the time that Webster was writing. But Webster's books managed to mix the Illuminati conspiracy theory with the anti-Semitism of the time and cement it in public consciousness. These books play a crucial role in the evolution of the Illuminati conspiracy theory. When we're tracing the trajectory of the Illuminati myth, it becomes a sort of baton that is passed over decades. So while Nestor Webster is being discredited by anyone with any knowledge of history, with anyone who is opposed to her politics, with anyone who is quite frankly, not going to take an historian seriously who is blaming world events on secret cabals. In terms of her contribution to beliefs and conspiracy theories, she actually is quite significant because, you know, she has published these seven books. She sticks to her kind of worldview. And when the next wave of anti-communism arises in the United States in the 50s and 60s, they refer back to the works of Nestor Webster. If you picked up one of Nestor Webster's books and knew little about the author or the subject matter, you could easily trust them, especially if they aligned with some of your existing views. This is what happens in the 1950s and 60s. Webster's ideas get transplanted to the US where they are picked up by conservative groups concerned with fighting communism. One group in particular cites Webster, 
the John Birch Society, which was founded in 1958 to defend the US against the threat of communism. The John Birch Society saw the US as a country pitched in a grand battle of good versus evil, light versus darkness, between the spirit of Christianity and the spirit of the Antichrist. It saw the Illuminati as behind the communist forces of chaos in the world. And a lot of its work underpinned the anti-communist witch hunts of the McCarthy era. While all of this is going on, people are increasingly beginning to question the legitimacy of conspiracy theories as a way of understanding the world. We heard a little about this in part one of the series, which explored how the term conspiracy theory only became a pejorative in the middle of the 20th century. The Illuminati played its role in this too. The level of influence the order was deemed to have by groups like the John Birch Society had become so grandiose and all-encompassing that elements of the 1960s counterculture began to parody it. Here's Lindsay again. So the seed was originally planted in an underground newspaper available in New York's East Village, which in the 60s and 70s was really the epicentre of the East Coast counterculture. And this newspaper had an elaborate chart, you know, not dissimilar to the one that Nestor Webster had seriously produced. And it documented the interconnectedness of among other organizations, the Communist Party, the Federal Reserve and the Bank of America, the House of Rothschild, the quote-unquote Elders of Zion, secret societies such as the Rosicutians, the Freemasons and the Shriners. And so far, it was very similar to what the John Birch Society or Nestor Webster had produced. But what made it different was that they included also figures and groups from the counterculture. So they have hippies in it the Black Panthers and other leftist groups like Students for a Democratic Society. Lindsay says the parody became too big to contain in a single chart and morphed into an enormous 800-page trilogy called Illuminatus. And it was the work of one uh, Robert Anton Wilson, who at the time was an editor at Playboy magazine. And he was really mocking the gullibility of what he felt were both ends of the political spectrum when it came to conspiracy theories. And he has this brilliant quote where he says, you know, we accused everybody of being in the Illuminati. Nixon, Johnson, ourselves, Martian invaders, all the conspiracy buffs, everybody. So Robert Anton Wilson and his colleague at Playboy, Robert Shea, published this huge parody. It brings absolutely everything that they can imagine under the umbrella of the Illuminati conspiracy theory. And Lindsay says that instead of killing the conspiracy theory people start quoting the book as if it's a real expose. And the Illuminati basically become whatever anyone wants them to be. At the end of the 20th century, the Illuminati myth had been picked up by the Christian right, who equated with Satanism. The US militia movement see the Illuminati as agents of the apocalypse and the New World Order. David Icke, you may remember him, former football goalie who... Um, had a whole series of very idiosyncratic and personal kind of conspiracy theories, one of which was that the British royal family were members of the Illuminati, but he kind of tied that in with extraterrestrials. The Illuminati feature in Dan Brown novels. They're in the film Tomb Raider. They always reflect contemporary concerns of the time. So it could be massive corporations having too much power or changes in dominant societal values. 
one of the more recent incarnations of the Illuminati, is the accusation that pop stars like Beyonce, Jay-Z and Rihanna are part of this secret society. There is a whole line of thought that is suggesting, you know, all of these very successful recording artists are all members of the Illuminati. And I think there's a great deal to unpick there in terms of, I think there's gender issues there. I think there are issues of race there where people are sort of thinking like, oh, hang on, how can these people be so powerful? It must be the Illuminati. At the same time, someone like Rihanna is really playing with that and she will purposely in her performances make a little eye in the pyramid symbol, you know, and that sort of triangle is is seen as a kind of shorthand for the Illuminati. There are parallels here with how the counterculture of the 1960s mimicked and mocked Illuminati conspiracy theorists. But it's not all fun and games. There's also a dark side to all of this. Lindsay gives the example from February 2018, when Rihanna faced opposition from religious groups in Senegal when she was visiting the country as part of an education initiative. They did not want her spreading her Illuminati ways, which in their view was also promoting homosexuality. And so it's like, what? What's going on? Um, But again, it's a way of pinning something sinister onto someone so that you can then kind of voice your own bigotry, I would say. And I think there is quite an ugly thread that can be kind of traced that is still using these conspiracy myths to voice really quite ugly ideas. In many ways, the Illuminati has become a shorthand for any conspiracy theory. Any personal group that is seen as a threat to the status quo or of having too much power can be accused of being in the Illuminati. To many people listening, the idea of the Illuminati today might sound ridiculous. A joke even. But there is also this sinister undertone to it. And it's used by some groups to justify some really awful behaviour. Take, for example, the crisis actor conspiracy theorists. These are people in the US that claim mass shootings are staged. So they accuse the victims and family members of tragedies like the Sandy Hook school shooting of being played by actors, hired by political groups that want to introduce tougher gun laws in the U.S. I don't know exactly what happened. Sandy Hook's inconclusive. For years, Alex Jones was the most powerful voice behind a disturbing conspiracy theory that the Sandy Hook shooting was a massive hoax. Lindsay says some of these conspiracy theorists point to a poster for a Sandy Hook fundraiser that betrayed so-called Illuminati involvement in the shooting. The poster for the fundraiser was of a child making the little heart symbol with their fingers. Um, and it was, a, it was a kind of stylized drawing, but the artist had had the child peering through the heart. Now, those who believed that the whole of Sandy Hook was a fabrication claimed that that was an Illuminati symbol because it was it was a single eye, you see, that was being emphasised. And that is just, it's frankly, it's barking. The Illuminati has come a long way from its 18th century origins as a secret society trying to spread Enlightenment ideas of rational thought among Europe's elite. Lindsay told me that the Illuminati had lots of symbols which the 18th century society used to avoid detection by the authorities of the time. Today's conspiracy theorists will slow down music videos or news footage to find these symbols and patterns affiliated with the Illuminati to back up their suspicions. 
But of course, belief in the Illuminati is not really that widespread today. I asked Michael Butter if he thinks there are more conspiracy theories today than ever before. I don't think that there are more conspiracy theories now in the present than there were in the past. I definitely think that there are more conspiracy theories now than we had 20 or 30 years ago and that more people believe in them anymore. But I think we still have less people believing in conspiracy theory than we had 100 or 200 years ago because it was so normal and it was not at all problematized back then. So conspiracy theories have increased again, but I don't think we are anywhere near the level yet at which we must have been 100 or 200 years ago. The recent increase in the prevalence of conspiracy theories is, of course, linked to the internet and their heightened visibility. We're going to explore how conspiracy theories spread and just how much the internet has changed the game in our next episode. You've been listening to the Expert Guide to Conspiracy Theories, brought to you by the Conversations Anthill podcast. Subscribe to the Anthill if you're not already, so you don't miss out on future episodes. And please consider leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts, as this helps more people discover it. If you're hungry for more on conspiracy theories, we've got loads of articles that are free to read on theconversation.com. Thanks to all the researchers who spoke to us for this episode and City University of London for letting us use their studios. Special thanks to Claire Birchall, Peter Knight and Michael Butter, who've helped bring this podcast into being. And to the Cost Action Compact for funding it. The Anthill is produced by me, Annabelle Bly and Gemma Ware. The sound design is by Eloise Stevens with original music by Nita Saal. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.